Good morning. In today's headlines, the search continues for a two-year-old girl and a baby boy swept away in a Pennsylvania flash flood. Authorities have identified them and released their photos. Georgia's Supreme Court denies a request from former President Trump to block the state's election probe. We have more on the decision from the state's high court. A former FBI agent says a tip to the Secret Service and Biden transition team thwarted an investigation into Hunter Biden. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the account reveals a two-tiered system of justice. As Republican candidates gear up for the first debate in August, Democrats are voicing concerns over a potential third-party unity ticket for the upcoming election. Tax laws are changing. What does it mean for you? We speak to an expert. A former Miss Florida turned jewelry designer shares her love for art and philanthropy. She designs jewelry, luxury jewelry, with inspiration from her love for horses. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, July 18. Evelyn, that is just so concerning that a simple typo can lead to the leak of these sensitive materials from the Pentagon and these emails. I mean, these are medical records, ID information, naval inspection reports, just so much information. Yeah, incredible, right? And if you remember, just a while ago, Chinese ad or ch hackers based in China actually broke into uh, U.S. government email accounts as well. That's right, yeah, and this is the difference between just giving it away versus making adversaries actually have to work for it. And we'll have more yeah. on that for you soon, but right now we're going to move on to an update on the recent flooding. That's right. Authorities have identified two kids still missing nearly two days after they were swept away by floodwaters that killed their mother. Maddie Shields, age two, and her nine-month-old brother, Conrad Shields, vanished Saturday evening. The body of their mother, Katie Seely, was found late Saturday. Seely was among five people who died after storms pummeled Bucks County over the weekend. A coroner says they all died from drowning. The family was visiting from South Carolina and were driving to a barbecue when they got stuck in flash flooding. The mother and a grandmother grabbed Maddie and Conrad. The father grabbed the children's four-year-old brother. The father and the four-year-old brother made it to safety, but the mother, grandmother, and younger children were swept away. The children's grandmother survived and was treated at a hospital. Local fire chief Tim Brewer reacted. These people did not drive into high water. They were caught. This was a flash flood, and this was the meaning of a flash flood. Every one of these people were caught in the water. The wall of water came to them. They did not go into the water. From floods to heat, the extreme weather isn't going anywhere for the time being. For those in the southwest, millions of people broiling under a sweltering heat wave will continue to suffer at least into next week, according to the National Weather Service. Be sure to stick around for our weather updates at the end of our program. President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the phone yesterday and invited him to visit the U.S., this could signal the easing of tensions between the Biden administration and Israel. President Biden on Monday invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the United States for an official visit later this year. Biden mentioned it in a phone call with Netanyahu on Monday, during which they discussed the broad range of global and regional issues that concern both nations. The president underscored his ironclad, unwavering commitment to Israel's security. 
and he condemned recent acts of terror against Israeli citizens. The two consulted on our close coordination to counter Iran, including through regular and ongoing joint military exercises. The call came on the eve of Israeli President Isaac Herzog's official visit to the U.S. Biden invited Herzog, whose role is largely ceremonial, to the White House. The move has been seen as a snubbing by Biden of Netanyahu. U.S.-Israel relations have been tense since Netanyahu returned to power last December. The Biden administration has been openly opposing some of Netanyahu's domestic policies, including judiciary overhaul in Israel. That doesn't mean that, and you shouldn't take away from the fact that they had a conversation today and that they'll meet again in the fall, that, that we have less concerns uh, over these judicial reforms or, or less concerns over uh, some of the uh, extremist activities and behavior by some members of the, the Netanyahu uh, cabinet. Those concerns are still valid. They're uh, they, they, uh, they're disturbing. Biden last spoke with Netanyahu in March and at the time decided to avoid meeting Netanyahu in the near term. The latest phone call and invitation is a reversal of Biden's position in March and could signal an easing of tensions. The Biden administration's latest plan to bail out student loans could cost even more than the plan rejected by the Supreme Court. This is according to a new study by the Penn Wharton budget model. The study estimates that the plan on student loan will cost $475 billion over 10 years. That's roughly $45 billion more than the previous plan rejected by the Supreme Court last month. Under the new proposal, monthly income-based student loan payments will be slashed in half. Minimum wage earners won't face monthly payments and all outstanding debt will be forgiven after 10 years of payments for student borrowers who took $12,000 or less. The Biden administration said most community college students would not have to pay back any debt. A Penn Wharton economist says the new plan incentivizes future student borrowers to increase their federal student loan borrowing. Moving on to defense, the absence of a single letter I has led to millions of sensitive Pentagon messages being leaked. Now an ally of Russia has access to them. That ally is the African country Mali. The military's domain name for emails is .mil, but it is often misspelled as .ml. That's Mali's domain. The leak includes sensitive information, which is unclassified. The Pentagon says emails not within the .mil domain are usually blocked, and the sender has to validate the recipient's email addresses. The Financial Times first reported the news. The outlet was informed of the leak by a Dutch entrepreneur who manages Molly's domain. They said they collected about 117,000 emails since January, and that's not all, saying the risk is real and that adversaries can exploit it. And we're bringing in retired Colonel John Mills, who's a former director of cybersecurity policy at the office of the Secretary of Defense. He joins us live to help us find out more about this. Great to have you with us, John. This leaked information, it includes travel details and passwords of top officials, tax returns and diplomatic documents, on top of even maps of military installations and photos of bases. What type of security risk does this pose? Well, good morning, Kevin. Uh, yeah, significant risk. And this reflects that, as always, and for four years, I was able to assemble a team and study in detail the cybersecurity status of the Department of Defense and the Intel community. It was always the basics. It was always, we would call it cyber hygiene, just the basics. 97% of our leaks were password related, uh, like a week or no password. 
uh, lack of two-factor authentication and the insider threat. And this is a fail. This is a failure to properly configure the uh, outgoing gateways to. Uh, hey, let's. Uh, you know this dot. Why are we having all these emails go to dot ml instead of dot mil? I mean, this is a relatively easy fix, and and it got and it, and we, the department missed it. And you mentioned back to basics here, and as you probably remember, you touched on this missing password back in February. That was the reason why the sensitive data in the U.S. military emails were exposed to the open internet. What role do humans play in cybersecurity here, and what can be done here? Uh, a big role. Uh, our number one finding, it was all about leadership, passionate leadership, and speed of action. It's like the uh, going back to the Office of Personnel Management uh, breach, one of the best, unfortunately, case studies of leaks to outside was uh, it was known for well over a year, and just the inability of the bureaucracy to react and do something was just shameful and painful and agonizing, and I lived through that. and. And this, this is the challenge. It's all about the human, even with advanced AI to replace a lot of the simple functions. Like we, sh we should, have had a, should have had a, an AI algorithm to catch this. We didn't. Uh, but it's all about the human and passion and speed of action and leadership. That is actually the key, key uh, factor. Some different avenues there to keep this information safe. Now, the DOD says they are aware of this and it takes all unauthorized disclosures seriously. It said the department has implemented policy and technical controls to ensure this doesn't happen. But is this a robust solution? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And and the way the, the, the building, as if I'm still in the building, the Pentagon spins up over events like this. It's meeting after meeting. This is very simple. Uh, Mr. Sherman, the, the DOD CIO, uh, gets called into the uh, front office, the Secretary of Defense, uh, or the Deputy Secretary, and says, I want an action plan, and I want it tomorrow to how to address this. This is how the thing should play out. But instead, oftentimes, it, it turns into a flail and a fury of just all these endless bureaucratic meetings with all the, the different power groups fighting each other. This is a relatively simple uh, uh, vulnerability to address, and yet I guarantee the building will just spin out of control for months over this before action is taken. Looking at this from the U.S. side, and when we look overseas, the .ml domain is in the process of being transferred over to Malian authorities. What do you expect them to do with this information once they have access to it? Uh, well, all of the above. I'm sure Mali is a, an impoverished country. I uh, had to deal with them before in some cybersecurity matters in the past. Uh, very likely, uh, they're going to let, this is called information sharing, they're probably going to let uh, countries uh, such as Russia, such as China, see these emails, probably for a price. Uh, that's, uh, that's well within the realm of what's likely going to happen here. Now, what should happen is our ambassador should immediately, uh, like today, uh, petition them and say, here's what we're going to do to make sure you don't, uh, we're going to sweeten, sweeten the, an offer to make sure you don't give these emails out because this is in their hands and this, to them, this is a gold mine of opportunity. A little bit of damage control might be needed there. Retired Colonel John Mills, it was great speaking with you. Thank you, Kevin. Always an honor to be on your show. The Biden administration is teaming up with Amazon, Google, Best Buy, and others to secure devices from cyber attacks. The White House is set to introduce a plan that allows Americans to identify devices that are better pro protected. 
A new certification and labeling program would raise the bar for security in smart devices. That includes refrigerators, microwaves, televisions, and thermostat systems. Retailers and devices maker, device makers will apply a U.S. Cybertrust mark logo to their devices. The program will be up and running in 2024. The FCC will seek public comment before rolling out the labeling program. Last week, Microsoft and U.S. officials said Chinese state-linked hackers secretly accessed email accounts at around 25 organizations, including at least two U.S. government agencies. And stay with us to find out why the Georgia Supreme Court denied a request from former President Trump to block the state's election probe. Is Senator Joe Manchin considering a third-party run in 2024? He discusses the benefits of a third-party candidate. Coming up on America's Hope, the dramatic story of a Chinese Christian pastor and his fight for freedom. Don't miss the incredible story of God's double agent, Bob Fu, on the next America's Hope. Welcome back. Recently retired FBI special agent backed up recent IRS whistleblower claims in a transcribed interview yesterday. That's over allegations of interference and special treatment in a criminal tax probe into Hunter Biden. The interview was conducted behind closed doors before the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability. Committee Chair James Comer issued a statement after the interview. He says the Justice Department's treatment of the matter reveals a two-tiered system of justice. The former FBI agent says he was assigned to interview Hunter Biden in a criminal tax probe with IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley in December of 2020, but that the interview never happened because FBI headquarters allegedly notified the Biden transition team and Secret Service about the plan. Comer says it frustrated investigative efforts because those who didn't need to know about it found out. The former agent has not yet been named. He told Congress that he and Shapley were not allowed to approach Hunter Biden's house and had to wait nearby until Hunter contacted them. The former FBI special agent told committee investigators it was the first time he had ever been told to wait outside for the subject of an investigation to contact him. Shapley and other, another IRS whistleblower are set to testify before Congress on Wednesday. A transcript of the former FBI agent's testimony could be released later this week. Georgia's top court rejected a request from former President Trump's legal team yesterday. That's in regards to an investigation into if Trump illegally sought to interfere with the state's 2020 election. The ruling comes just weeks before prosecutors are expected to seek formal charges. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the court's decision. I raised In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia on Monday denied Trump's attempt to scuttle a grand jury report in Fulton County on the 2020 presidential election in that state. The petition filed last week by Trump's lawyers also asked that Fulton County District Attorney Fannis Willis be disqualified from the case. The state's high court said in a five-page opinion that Trump hadn't demonstrated the extraordinary circumstances that would require their intervention at this time. Eight of the nine members of the state's high court were appointed by Republican governors. Trump's legal team previously filed a separate petition asking the state judge who oversaw the grand jury to disqualify Willis and bar the report from use in any future civil or criminal proceeding. The judge has not yet ruled on that request. 
Trump's lawyers acknowledged that the dual filings were unusual, but said they were necessary because of the tight time frame. Given Trump's status as a former president and 2024 presidential candidate, they petitioned the state Supreme Court directly. The justices declined to overstep the lower court, writing that Trump has not shown he has been prevented fair access to the ordinary channels. The special panel produced the report after interviewing about 75 witnesses, including some of the state's top officials, over the course of nine months. Willis has suggested she's likely to seek charges in the case from a grand jury next month. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on Monday discussed the idea of a third-party candidate in the 2024 presidential election. He said it would push the two parties into more moderate positions as the only path to victory. Here's the story. I'm not here running for president tonight. I'm not. I'm here trying to basically save the nation. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin fueled speculation on Monday that, despite his denials, he could run for the nation's top office. The politician from West Virginia was appearing at an event sponsored by the self-described centrist group No Labels. The former West Virginia governor left open the door to being a candidate under the group's banner, but said he hadn't decided yet. I'm concerned more now than I've ever been concerned in my lifetime. I have three children and ten grandchildren, a tremendous amount of friends and colleagues. I'm concerned and they're concerned. The event was held in the key election battleground state of New Hampshire. It's a regular stop for presidential hopefuls because of its early spot in the primary election calendar. I don't like the way things are going in our government. The state has voted for Democratic presidential candidates in the last five elections. Candidates see the state as a way of building momentum early on if they perform well there. Manchin told the audience at Monday's event he believed that having a third-party candidate separate from the Republican and Democratic nominees could move both parties towards more moderate positions. So we don't live our life over the extremes. I don't live my life on the right or the left. I've got to make decisions for myself and my family pretty much in the center, center left, center right. And the Republicans, I've said this, I've never met the first person that's always wrong. But I've never met the first person that's always right. Joseph Manchin and Ms. Gail Manchin. Manchin has made a career in the Senate employing uncertainty about how he would vote on major legislation. Despite being a Democrat, he's been a roadblock for Democratic President Joe Biden, including over Biden's signature infrastructure bill in 2021. As Republican candidates gear up for the first debate in August, recent campaign finance data shows former President Trump has raised the most cash in the second quarter, which is April through June. Entities Arlene Richards reviews the top fundraisers and which candidates are eligible to debate. The latest Federal Election Commission data shows the former president has raised nearly $36 million to date. He's leading Governor Ron DeSantis by more than $15 million. DeSantis has raised over $20 million, but he's spent more than $8 million since he entered the race in late May. And now he's cutting back on staff. Candidates spend donations on a number of expenses, including travel, payroll, and advertising. As of June 30th, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is holding his own at just over $19 million raised. Other top candidates have raised between $7 million and $11 million. Former Vice President Mike Pence remains at the bottom half of the pack with less than $1.2 million raised. But campaign financing alone won't get candidates to the debate stage. The Republican National Committee has three requirements. One, raise money from a minimum of 40,000 donors. Two, register 1% or above in three national polls or two national polls and one early voting state poll. 
and three pledged to back the GOP nominee. The qualifying polls must be conducted after July 1st. A morning consult poll released last week is one of the first national polls approved by the committee. 56% of GOP primary voters polled said they would vote for Trump in 2024. DeSantis held a distant second at 17%. Ramaswamy got third place with 8% overtaking Pence. Other candidates who made the cut include Pence, Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson. Some candidates eager to make the debate stage have to be creative to secure 40,000 donors. For example, Ramaswamy recruited people to raise money for him, and he's willing to let them keep 10% of what they get from donors. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is seeking donations of as little as $1 and offering a $20 MasterCard or Visa gift card in return. It's unclear whether or not these tactics would pass muster with the Federal Election Commission, but so far there haven't been any legal or ethical challenges. It's also not clear whether or not all of the candidates have pledged to support the winning nominee. Chris Christie has said he could never support Trump again, and Trump himself has yet to sign the pledge. Coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken blasts Russia's decision to halt participation in the Black Sea grain deal. And American companies operating in China are said to be facing pressure from the communist regime to do Beijing's bidding. The coercion involves arbitrary prosecutions and censorship. That's according to a congressional witness. We spoke to her. Good to have you back with us. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken blasted Russia's decision on Monday to halt participation in the Black Sea grain deal. The year-old deal lets Ukraine export grain through the Black Sea. Blinken called for the pact to be restored as quickly as possible. Here's Blinken yesterday. The bottom line is it's unconscionable. So the result of Russia's action today, weaponizing food, using it as a tool, as a weapon in its war against Ukraine, uh, will be to make uh, food harder to come by in places that desperately need it. This should be restored as quickly as possible. And I hope that every country is watching this very closely. The move by Moscow came just hours after it said a, quote, terrorist attack struck a strategic bridge linking the Russian mainland to Russian-occupied Crimea. But Russian officials denied that prompted them to quit the grain deal. The Black Sea Grain Agreement was brokered by the U.N. and Turkey in July last year to alleviate a global food crisis worsened by Russia's February 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia are some of the world's biggest exporters of grain and other foodstuffs, and any interruption could drive up food prices across the globe. At a meeting of the UN Security Council, British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly also condemned Russia's termination of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Let us be clear, Russia's actions are taking food out of the mouths of the poorest people across Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. We cannot allow this war to go on for another 500 days. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said he has written to Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, calling for the continued operation of the Black Sea grain shipment deal without Russia's participation. 
In more international news, the way American companies are complicit in China's human rights abuses is coming back into the spotlight. The Congressional Executive Commission on China heard testimony about this. Part of the hearing centered on forced labor in China's Xinjiang region, with one senator telling us the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is starting to make a big difference. But there are other ways companies are complicit. That stems from pressure from the Chinese Communist Party and companies to self-censor and politicize prosecutions. That's according to one witness. I spoke with her. Please welcome Sarah Cook, who's a senior advisor for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House. Sarah, this is a really important topic, and I'm glad to have your expert analysis on this. What is the business environment in China right now, and what pressure are these companies facing to be complicit in human rights abuses happening there? Uh, well, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. And I think, I think we are seeing the business environment, especially for foreign companies in China, deteriorate. And you actually see the foreign companies taking note. Uh, a recent survey that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce did among companies in China found that more and more of them are seeing investment in China as a lower priority, are exploring other options, and are very concerned about the worsening and less welcome environment. And when we talk about pressure, some of what we're seeing are amendments, for example, to an espionage law that could put employees of companies at greater risk of pretty much arbitrary prosecutions just for trying to obtain the kind of government data or corporate information or communication with local Chinese journalists or business people that in the past uh, was just pretty common and, and tolerated by the CCP. But given the changes to the law and some recent raids and prosecutions of both foreigners and Chinese has put a real chill on those kinds of engagements and makes it much harder and more dangerous to get certain information about what's actually happening in China. And that, of course, can also be used as leverage to put pressure on companies to do Beijing's bidding. And I was going to ask you about this. What leverage is the CCP using here to prevent companies from keeping ethical business practices? Well, I think some things are done maybe more knowingly and some less knowingly. Um, if you look at some supply chain issues, I think sometimes local partners actually try to deceive the foreign companies who are perhaps trying to uh, have best practices. In other cases, it's a little bit trickier what the level of complicity is. I think when it comes to information, which is more my area of expertise, sometimes it's very direct. You know, the, the internet regulator will tell companies, you cannot have this app or you need to take this down. And even foreign companies like Apple go ahead and comply because they don't want to be blocked out of the market. And so you have hundreds of apps, uh, including of US media outlets, um, um, that are blocked, are not available in, in Apple's App Store, for example, inside China. That's increasingly now creeping over into Hong Kong. But in other cases, what happens is that there might be some preemptive self-censorship by corporations, where they're worried about what their drop-down menu is and how it refers to Hong Kong, or what posts they do on social media even outside of China, because the Chinese government might push back and create some kind of business problem for them inside China. I think what we have with the recent environment is the risk is that it might go beyond censorship, again, to get into greater prosecutions, to greater um, examples of maybe leverage or demand from Beijing on companies to even engage in censorship of other people, whether inside China, like we said about Apple, or even potentially pressure um, outside of China to engage in censorship. Well, thank you so much for shedding a light on this. Sarah Cook at Freedom House, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 
And now let's get to some short headlines from around the world. Four naval ships of the Russian Pacific Fleet will take part in joint drills with Chinese counterparts in the Sea of Japan later this month. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry. China said the exercises is aimed at safeguarding the security of strategic waterways. In British Columbia, a second firefighter has died battling Canada's wildfires. Authorities have requested help from the Canadian Armed Forces and an additional 1,000 international firefighters, about 24 million acres, have burned since May. Kevin Spacey's lawyers enlisted the help of singer Elton John to cast doubt on one of the Oscar winner's accusers. John appeared briefly in the London court by video link from Monaco. He was the final witness for the defense. Spacey has pleaded not guilty to a dozen charges that include sexual and indecent assault counts. A Mexican tuna boat rescued an Australian sailor who was adrift at sea with his dock for three months. Timothy Shattuck was aboard his disabled catamaran in the Pacific about 1,200 miles from land when the crew spotted them. Shattuck said he and his dog survived on raw fish and rainwater after a storm damaged his vessel. That is just an incredible story about that I sea know. rescue, isn't it? Well, good that they got so smart about how to survive, that they knew how to fish, and they actually made use of that rainwater. Yes, that resourcefulness really came in handy. And coming up, tax laws are changing. What does it mean for you? We speak to an expert. Also coming up, Hollywood as an entire industry could collapse because of the strike. We talked to Hollywood insiders to get their take that story after the break. to have you back. A popular tax break in the form of catch-up contributions to your 401k is set to vanish. We're bringing in Willie McBride, the Vice President of Federal Tax and Economic Policy at the Tax Foundation, to break down what this means. Good morning, William. Could you please start by explaining what exactly will change for the catch-up contributions? Hi, good morning. Uh, sure. It's, so it's, a, it's somewhat of an accident of a, a new legislation passed in December uh, that changed a number of rules to retirement accounts. Uh, but the one that is uh, causing the problems here is that uh, catch-up contributions, uh, which had been uh, a considerable tax break for folks uh, 50 years and older, uh, allowing them to um, you know, uh, deduct uh, something like $7,500 this year, in addition to their to their regular contributions uh, to 401k accounts, that is now in jeopardy. Um, the new rules require uh, that those catch-up contributions go into uh, what are called Roth retirement accounts. So that means no upfront deduction uh, for those contributions, but instead uh, the income uh, that is withdrawn from the accounts is not subject to tax. Um, so what that means is um, uh, that on its own is somewhat of a a challenge for a lot of folks in, uh, 50 years and older because they're at their highest uh, earning period in their careers and they're at the highest tax brackets. Uh, so it's actually quite a nice benefit to have an additional contribution at that age uh, that is deductible uh, against high tax rates. So the problem though is that the, it was passed in December and payroll administrators now say they can't implement the rules in time such that effectively what it means is that all catch-up contributions will be eliminated for uh, probably most taxpayers. 
Oh, wow. So um, that aside, first, um, with the issues, because we want to touch on that later, but what kind of changes do you suggest then in terms of saving strategy? Uh, well, there's there's uh, the uh, Roth, IR, Roth IRAs are available still, and, and uh, which operate the same way as uh, these rules require. Uh, Roth-style uh, retirement accounts do provide the, the benefit I described, that there's no tax on uh, withdrawn amounts. Uh, so you can still do that um, uh, once these rules are worked out, once, once the payroll administrators uh, figure out how to do it. Um, it, it. It's still a benefit. It just means you don't get the upfront deduction. Uh, but um, And you can still do that outside of your employer accounts with a Roth IRA uh, under, the, under the existing rules. So, so basically, the rules are pushing us towards the Roth-style uh, retirement benefit. So you can still do that. I see. Now, uh, let's talk about the issues for a moment. When you say issues, what exactly are people running in now? Like, what do you mean by that um, ahead of the implementation? And, and is there any chance that this will lead to a delay? Or how big are their chances? Right. Uh, a lot of these administrators have gotten together and uh, submitted a letter to uh, the Treasury Department uh, to uh, request a two-year delay in these rules uh, because of the challenges of implementation. And uh, probably they have, there, there's so many of them. This is, represents many, many thousands of taxpayers uh, with these uh, accounts uh, that I think there's a good chance uh, that uh, the Treasury Department and the IRS will provide some sort of delay in the implementation, whether it's one year or two years, uh, so that um, folks can continue to do these catch-up contributions under the current rules. Hmm. Sounds, sounds like a little more time may be needed to iron some of the issues out. So thank you so much, Willie McBride. I appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you. Moving on to Hollywood. Could the entire film and TV industry in Hollywood collapse? Maybe. With actors and writers on strike, there will be fewer things to watch, and then people will, might cancel their streaming subscriptions. And without that streaming revenue, Hollywood may have a hard time creating new content. Entity's Colin Fredrickson talks with industry insiders for insight. Over the weekend, media mogul Barry Diller told CBS's Face the Nation that the entire Hollywood industry could potentially collapse if the writers and actors can't strike a deal with the alliance of motion picture and television producers, Hollywood will produce less content. Less content means canceled subscriptions, which means there may not be enough money to create new content. If it is an entire shutdown, it's going to hurt a lot of people. A lot of people who are working, this is how they make their living. Uh, they've got families to support, businesses. Um, it's, it's going to be a tough thing. SAG actress Laura Rico has been in the Screen Actors Guild for over two decades. She says the strike is necessary, though nobody really wants it to happen. If it does collapse, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be nasty. You know, so many people look to entertainment for happiness and for a getaway. People learn from TV and film. People relate. People that are, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are very lonely and they live alone. And for them, it's watching a family on TV and learning from that. Some in Hollywood don't believe the industry will collapse. There have been Hollywood strikes in the past, and in the end, they were all resolved. I really don't think the studios are going to cut off their head to spite themselves. Without actors, without writers, there's not going to be content. So at some point, not making money 
is going to be a problem. Ricky Lee Travolta has been in entertainment all his life. He says that both sides are just flexing right now and will eventually strike a deal before too much damage is done. At the moment, a lot of content has already been shot, but if the strike goes on for too long, there will be a lack of content for 2024. If the strike goes longer as two months, then we will have a real crisis because to make a film or a TV show takes almost a year in total. So means like the real delay, we see 2024 based on what, what's it happening now. Uwe Ball is a director and producer who's produced over 50 films with actors like Jason Statham, Ben Kingsley, and Michelle Rodriguez. He's trying to cast Wesley Snipes for his new movie, but the strike is making it hard. Ball says that even if many people cancel subscriptions, he doesn't think it'll cause the entire industry to collapse. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. More coverage coming up. An airplane emergency evacuation slide ended up in a Chicago neighborhood yesterday. And public schools can conceal if a child is transitioning to another gender from their parents. That's what a federal judge in California says. Good to have you back. An airplane emergency evacuation slide ended up in a Chicago neighborhood yesterday. Authorities are now investigating how the United Airlines Boeing 767 slide came off midair. The FAA says maintenance workers at Chicago O'Hare International Airport realized the slide was missing after the plane landed that was following a flight from Switzerland. United Airlines said in a statement that it can contacted the FAA and are working to better understand the circumstances around the matter. And local media reported the slide hit a house, causing damage to the roof shingles and kitchen window screen. A neighbor that saw the slide said it was bigger than a car. Mexico is pushing back against the floating barrier plan on the Rio Grande River, citing potential treaty violations. The country's top diplomat contacted the U.S. to address those concerns. According to her, the treaties say the river must remain unobstructed, and if the buoys impede the water flow, it would be a violation. Mexico has already requested the removal of the barriers. Texas began rolling out the floating barrier in the Rio Grande in early July. It's part of Governor Abbott's plan to deter illegal border crossings, which have reached record levels in the past two years. Migrant advocates have voiced concerns about drowning risks from the buoys, and environmentalists suggest question the impact on the river. In other news, Iowa's new abortion law has been put on hold. The law signed Friday by Governor Kim Reynolds bans abortion after detection of a heartbeat, usually around six weeks of pregnancy. An Iowa judge yesterday temporarily blocked the law. That means abortion is once again legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks of pregnancy while the courts review the law's constitutionality. The law allows exceptions in the case of rape, incest, or if the life of the mother is at risk. The ACLU of Iowa Planned Parenthood and the Emma Goldman Clinic challenged the new law just hours after lawmakers approved it last week. Governor Reynolds released a statement yesterday saying she will fight all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court. Public schools don't have to tell parents if their child takes on a new gender identity. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the decision of a federal court in California. The case centers around a mom named Aurora Regino, 
Her daughter attended school in the Chico Unified School District in California. Regino says last year was a rough one for her family. Her dad had recently died and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her daughter was distressed and started questioning her sexuality. It was what happened next which culminated in a lawsuit. Last year, my 11-year-old daughter was in elementary school here at Chico Unified, and her elementary school transitioned her from female to male behind my back. Regino says a guidance counselor affirmed her daughter's new identity as a boy on the same day her daughter expressed she felt that way and began to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with her without her knowledge. She says the counselor even ignored her daughter's request to share her new identity with her mom. It's a slippery slope to allow any adult in our schools to keep secrets from parents. U.S. District Judge John Mendez dismissed Regino's lawsuit. He says the district demonstrated a legitimate state interest in creating a zone of protection for transgender students from adverse hostile reactions like domestic abuse and bullying. But Regino says it was the school rushing her daughter into transitioning which resulted in bullying. She was very young and didn't understand what being transgender really meant or the obstacle she would face going through a transition. The school transitioned her and left her to figure it out on her own. Similar battles are taking place across the nation over such in-school transitions. The organization Parents Defending Education says more than a thousand school districts have policies that openly state that school staff cannot or should not inform parents on a new gender identity of their child. Meanwhile, a new California bill could cause parents who don't affirm their child's new gender identity to lose them in a custody battle. AB 957 would enable courts to factor in a parent's affirmation of a child's gender identity when making visitation and custody decisions. California attorney Nicole Pearson says the bill creates a very perverse incentive for a parent to be the most extreme affirming parent to win custody. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to Chico Unified School District for comment, but didn't hear back by broadcast time. And just ahead, a former Miss Florida turned jewelry designer shares her love for art and philanthropy. We'll learn more about her craft and how she finds inspiration when we come back. Welcome back. So Evelyn, do you have anything inspiring for us as we wrap up here? Oh, absolutely. In today's inspired story, we hear from a former Miss Florida who became a driller. Her designs come from her love of horses and capture the beauty of the bond between humans and horses. Let's take a look. Karina Brez was crowned Miss Florida in 2012, and the following year, she started her own jewellery collection, combining her love for horses and her expertise as a certified gemologist. Brez created elegant designs that became the talk of the equestrian world. I use the horse as my inspiration for these collections. I have over seven different collections that are all um, pretty much designed around the equestrian sport. And all the pieces that I design are mostly in white, yellow, or rose gold with diamonds and semi-precious gemstones. Bress comes from a family of master jewelers. She's been a jewelry appraiser from an early age and graduated from a gemology school. She says the inspiration for the work she's doing now was born at the Winter Equestrian Festival in Wellington, Florida, over 10 years ago. I've loved horses ever since I was a little girl, and we just kind of sat one day and I was thinking, you know, what am I, what's the next step? What am I going to do? 
And I said, you know, I love horses. I know jewelry. And if I was to create something that is both of my passions and something that I've done for practically my whole life, I thought this would be a perfect fit. So that's how Karina Breast Jewelry was born. Breast designs luxury equestrian jewelry for a very particular group of people who love horses, including trainers, writers and enthusiasts. Her works include the Lucky Horseshoe Collection, the Horse Sea Collection, which was inspired by a mythological creature that lives in the sea, and the Huggable Hooves Collection. So, like, for instance, my Huggable Hooves, which is one of my number one sellers, is like having a horse hug. It's very sentimental. I can have clients engrave their name into the horse's hooves, um, engrave their horse's name into the hooves, or engrave anything. And it's more of a sentimental piece of jewelry, which seems to be very popular these days. The former Miss Florida is also an ambassador for Horses Healing Hearts. It's a non-profit organization that provides horse-assisted therapy for children affected by parents with substance abuse. Years and years ago, my friend uh, Liz started Horses Healing Hearts and I joined them. It's a therapy program for children of alcoholics and we do a, a therapy session with them on the weekends. It's ages, let's say from age 6 to 18 every weekend and it's a great immersive um, experience with the horses for them to ride in a therapy program at the same time. Brez says her persistence and determination have helped her succeed as a small business owner. In 2021, Karina Breast Jewelry opened a retail location in Palm Beach, Florida. Her collections start at $395 and can go up to a million dollars. Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. You know, Evelyn, I've seen a lot of stories, but that one is definitely one of the more unique ones. Oh yeah, that's very true. But it looks like she has some really refined pieces there. It's very pretty. Yes, like she's it. an artiste. And what an interesting mix, jewelry and horses. Mm. What about jewelry for the horses? Oh wow, that would uh, reach a whole nother level of <laughs> decadence. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.